if we are going to persevere, we must count the cost. And we must realize that opposition is isolating, it is unfair, and it is dangerous. Before we sit, let's pray. Heavenly Father, tonight, please speak to us through the Holy Spirit. Please teach us, challenge us, and equip us to persevere in living faithfully for you. Amen. Amen. Do take a seat. Allow me to share something with you that I read on the uh, internet this week. It is a uh, news report from the end of last year, and it said this. A Christian man has been sentenced to six years in prison for insulting the prophet Muhammad following a dispute with a Muslim colleague in Egypt. Makram Diab, a school secretary, was given double the maximum sentence for defamation of religion, prompting accusations that the judge acted to appease Muslim groups at the court. An angry two and a half thousand strong mob had gathered outside demanding the death penalty for the defendant. Some were reportedly carrying knives, they were blocked by police from breaking into the court. However, over 80 Islamist lawyers filled the court. They locked the door from the inside, not allowing the judge out and preventing the defense lawyer from going inside to do his job. Diab's crime? It was alleged that he had said the Prophet Muhammad had sexually harassed his disciples. The allegation was made by a teacher who was not even present in the original dispute. And according to Diab's sister, Diab had simply asked whether it was true that Muhammad had married 40 wives. How do you feel at hearing that? Sad? Angry at the, at the sense of injustice? Of course, over the last few weeks, our series on Acts has been reminding us that to live a life of faithful witness to Jesus is to live a life marked out by unfair persecution and opposition. And we should not be surprised by that. Indeed, we should expect it. And it's interesting to see how many similarities there are between that contemporary example and tonight's episode of Acts in chapter 24, where we see that Paul too stands accused of serious disrespect to a religion, to the Jewish religion, for insulting or profaning the temple. In addition, he stands accused of stirring up riots and causing public order issues. Paul, too, has had to contend with angry mobs demanding his death, and the authorities have arrested him and they have put him on trial. Paul, too, has had to defend himself against absent witnesses, and as if that weren't enough, by the end of the chapter, he also suffers an unjust imprisonment. And yet, despite all this, Paul sets us a courageous example, persevering in gospel proclamation regardless of the outcome. And what we see in Acts 24 are three things that, if we take them on board, can help us to persevere too. So if you haven't done so already, now would be a good time to uh, grab your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 24. It's page 933. And my first point of three is this, that in order to persevere, we need to understand the nature 
of the opposition. Verse 1. And after five days, that's five days since Paul's extradition north um, uh, from Jerusalem to Caesarea that we heard about last week. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor, that's Felix, their case against Paul. And I want you to picture the scene that Luke is trying to paint for us here. On the, one side, on the one side, we have the prosecution. It's a large group that includes the high priest himself, it includes the Jewish elders, and they're all represented by this smooth-talking lawyer. Then there is the presiding judge. And now, no doubt, he is surrounded by his soldiers and servants attending to his every whim. And then there is the defendant, Paul, all on his own, just Paul. And so the first thing we learn about opposition here is that it is often isolating. Often the battles are fought out there in the world. They're not fought as a respected um, majority, but they are fought as a maligned, persecuted minority. And we can often find ourselves on our own defending the gospel. We need to expect it. We need to be prepared for it. I'm only too aware how a, an acute and an issue uh, this actually is, for, for our children, especially for our children. My eldest son is, um, is desperately alone in his class at school as he tries to stand up for Jesus. He has been picked on, he has been bullied, and he has even been physically attacked by those who think it is funny to try and get a Bible basher to blaspheme. Now, he's learning some tough lessons. He's just 13. But that is part of the experience of calling yourself a Christian. And anyone who tells you otherwise is deceiving you. No, it, it doesn't make it right. And that's the second thing we learn about opposition in this passage. It is unfair. After Luke describes the nauseating flattery of uh, Tertullus's opening remarks in verses two to four. Um, after those remarks, we learn just how unfair opposition can be. Verse five. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among Jews throughout the world. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Paul has false accusation after false accusation leveled against him. He's a troublemaker. No, it was a lie. He's stirring up riots. No, it was a lie. He even tried to desecrate the temple. No, he didn't. That was a lie. And Tertullus then even has the audacity to amend the account of what the Jews actually did. But we seized him. No, it was a lie. And Luke notes in verse 9, by way of con conclusion to Tertullus' speech, that the Jews also join in, and in so doing, they damn themselves. I mean, these guys are so intent on trumping up charges against Paul that they are willing to flagrantly disregard God's law, to disobey him. And notice how they do this. They move away from hard facts, and they muddy the water with opinions and motives, all of which are easy 
are, are easily used to discredit somebody, but they are much harder to prove. And so we see in this example, the Jews not accusing Paul of desecrating the temple. They know that won't stick. Rather, they accuse him of trying to desecrate the temple because it is much harder to disprove a man's motive or his intent. This is classic smear territory. So the nature of opposition is that it is isolating. It is unfair. And thirdly, it can also be dangerous. Make no mistake, Paul is in more than just a bit of a pickle here. These are serious charges and his very life is on the line. At that moment, Paul um, has the, the weight of two powerful entities bearing down on him. On, on the one hand, there is the, the, the political superpower of Rome. And on the other hand, there is the religious influence of the Jews, both of whom have the potential to end his life. Death is a realistic possibility for Paul here. And up until now, the Roman authorities have acquitted themselves pretty well. We've seen them in Acts. They've, uh, they've saved Paul's skin on a few occasions. And, and that should encourage us that God can use the authorities to do his work. But the salutary reminder in this episode is that secular authorities are just that. They're secular. And so they have different motives and different agendas to us. In Paul's case, Governor Felix was motivated by what was best and easiest for him. He has no interest in the truth. And so he appeases the Jews for an easy life and he tries to get a bribe out of Paul to, to feather his own nest. We must remember that while fallen authorities may be on our side to some extent, they'll always remain fallen and have the capacity to be against us or even careless towards us. Now, in Newcastle, we may not face this, exactly the same kind of physical danger and persecution from authorities that some of our brothers and sisters around the world do, such as the example from Egypt earlier. But we need to be prepared to. Are we really that far away from jail terms in this country for those who hold traditional biblical views? Are we prepared to lose our jobs, to go to prison, for faithful gospel proclamation, to take a stand against authorities intent on institutionalizing sin. Church leaders are already warning that hundreds of thousands of young Christians will be put off wanting to become teachers, doctors, nurses, or other public servants if, for example, the same-sex marriage bill goes through. And what about those of us who are already in such positions? Are we prepared to have our livelihoods threatened? Say, for example, if teachers must teach the equality of same-sex marriage and uh, of same-sex marriage with heterosexual marriage? If we are going to persevere, we must count the cost. And we must realize that opposition is isolating, it is unfair, and it is dangerous. My second point is this, to persevere by taking every opportunity to proclaim the whole gospel, the whole gospel. So far over the last few weeks, we have seen Paul take this opportunity in two main ways. Firstly, we've seen him take the opportunity, pub opportunity publicly, and here we see it again in verses 14 and 15. He's he confesses to you that he worships, the, he worships God. 
He believes everything laid down by the law. He believes the prophets. He has a hope in God. He believes in the resurrection of both the unjust and the just. Secondly, we've seen him take that opportunity through lifestyle evangelism. It's reiterated here again in verse 16, where he says, I I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. But what we have not seen so far is him exploit the God-given opportunity of personal conversational evangelism. Look over the page to verse 24, which follows an effective adjournment of the case with Paul being kept in custody. Verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. This episode with Felix and Drusilla is particularly interesting. In what ways would Paul talk about faith in Christ Jesus? How would he proclaim the whole gospel to these two? Well, we know from other sources that Felix himself was a a ruthlessly cruel man. We also know that Drusilla was Felix's third wife, and she herself, uh, although not yet 20, had been married before. So, would Paul dodge the issue that the Christian faith has ethical implications? Would he water down his proclamation? Of course not. We see in verse 25 that for Paul, speaking about faith in Christ meant explaining righteousness and self-control and coming judgment. The simple truth is that any proclamation of the good news must first explain the bad news. Because the gospel does not make sense if we don't explain how our rebellion, how our selfishness, how our sin cuts us off from enjoying a relationship with God. The gospel does not make sense if we don't explain that Christ will come again to judge that sin. The gospel does not make sense if we don't explain that there is no way to avoid that judgment except through faith in Jesus Christ. So no doubt Paul probably reasoned with Felix and Drusilla, pleading with them that they needed to appreciate that because judgment was coming in the future, there were implications for the way they lived in the present. Please don't misunderstand me. This is not the same as saying that the way that we live now in the present in some way affects our future, in some way earns us that salvation. What I am saying is that the gospel is God's power to change lives and that the gospel is not effective until it moves from a theoretical understanding into a life-changing dynamic, until it moves from knowledge to action and to righteous living. So, how would Felix and Drusilla respond? Well, what happens next highlights my third and final point. And that is that in order to persevere, we need to keep an eternal perspective, regardless of the results. Let's have a look at verse 25. And as Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. And he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I 
will summon you. That's not good. <laughs> They're not interested. Paul got too close. He fluffed it. And we can be tempted to think, aren't we, what did Paul do wrong? Likewise, when we may get a negative response to our attempts at sharing the message, we can be tempted to think, what did I do wrong? I remember the first time this, uh, this happened in an obvious fashion to me. I was helping to run uh, an alpha course, which if you don't know is similar to Christianity Explored. And we were running this uh, course for a group of our friends. And we were probably about three quarters of the way through the course. And I had a phone call uh, from one of them. And uh, representing uh, he and his girlfriend, they were boyfriend and girlfriend at the time. And uh, he said to me, he said, John, we've really enjoyed coming along, but we're not going to come anymore. He said, we're going too far down this path to becoming Christians than we want to and we're really that comfortable with. And I must confess that I had thoughts about what I had said or what I hadn't said. Had we gone too far on the course? Should we have left some bits out? And maybe you think that Paul shouldn't, in this example, shouldn't have spoken about issues of righteousness, about issues of self-control, about issues of the coming judgment quite so early on. Maybe you think that was a step too far for Felix and, and Paul should have met him halfway. Why not amend the message? Why not make it more palatable? Why not miss out those bits that are likely to cause personal offense? No. Friends, for us, the implication is clear. There is no area that is off limits for gospel proclamation. There is no situation that is too dangerous, that is too difficult, that is too offensive or too personal. And there is no content that we leave out because we may fear it is too unpalatable. We need to remember that in evangelism the results are up to God. And if we're tempted to think that this negative response was just a one-off, look back to verse 22. There we see that Felix who apparently was well acquainted with the way, he adjourns the case. It seems he has been in Israel long enough to know that the followers of the way were not really riot inciters. He knows that there is no case to answer here. But Paul isn't freed. In fact, we learn in verse 27, he stays in jail, albeit with some liberties, for two years. There is no public vindication for Paul. It is another negative response to the gospel. And I think Luke records both negative results to this faithful gospel proclamation to highlight an important principle. It is faithfulness in proclamation that counts and not the results. It's faithfulness in proclamation that counts. I wonder, do you hear the call to faithfulness first and not success? Because if you don't, every time someone comes to know Jesus because of something you have said or because of your actions, you will become puffed up with pride at what a good job you did. Or the other more likely extreme is that every time you share the gospel and no one responds, you'll become hopelessly depressed at your inability. God doesn't want you to be proud or depressed. He wants you to be faithful and obedient in your proclamation. Leave the results up to God. But if that is the case, 
How do we really stay motivated to persevere? Answer, by keeping one eye on the eternal. The story is told of a minister uh, and his curate undertaking some parish visiting. Apparently one particular affluent parishioner who was well known in the community had visited their church the previous Sunday and filled in a newcomer's card. Uh, very obliging, he put his address and he said that he wanted to find out more about the Christian faith. So the minister and the curate decided to drop by and talk with him about the good news. They decided to drive together in the same car and they arrived at this exclusive mansion and they wound their way up the long driveway which circled in front of his large palatial home. The lawn was thick and it was manicured and the landscaping was elegant. Kids were playing happily out front in the driveway. They could see into the back garden where there was a huge pool and a, a splashing fountain. There were three luxurious cars, one of which was a bright red Ferrari sitting in front of a triple garage. Parking their Ford Fiesta out the front, the church leaders could see the man of the house through the window of his study. He was sitting in his large, soft leather chair. His beautiful wife was by his side. He was laughing with his friends and he was having the greatest of time as they all drank champagne. At that moment, the young curate turned to the minister and said, now tell me again, what kind of good news do we have for this guy? Can be easy to think that way, can't it? What kind of good news do we have for our friends who enjoy the here and now? Well, never forget that our good news is about the life to come. It is about rescue from the coming judgment. It is not a message of prosperity and good times for the here and now. And if you take just one thing from these last few sermons on Sunday nights, take away this. Paul's motivation, Paul's drive, Paul's perseverance stems from his eternal perspective. What about you? Where do you stand at the moment? If you are here tonight and you are not a Christian, you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, my plea to you is do not be like Felix and Drusilla. When it all gets too personal, when it all gets too close, don't distance yourself from the pressing issue. Don't run away and bury your head in the sand. This is way too important for that. Christ will return to judge the living and the dead. Paul has been consistently stating that he believes in the resurrection of the dead. Our Old Testament passage from tonight highlights that some of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life on judgment day, some to everlasting shame and contempt. That's what will happen on, uh, at the resurrection of the dead, this thing that Paul keeps saying he believes in, there will be judgment. But the glorious gospel is... You can be right with God again through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. I urge you, trust in him tonight. Claim the promise of Romans 8, verse 1. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. For those of us here who would call ourselves Christians, remember the words of our Lord Jesus himself. He said this, blessed are you when others revile you, when they persecute you, when they utter all kinds of evil against you falsely 
on my account. Is that not what was happening to Paul? Is that not what was happening to the Egyptian secretary? Is that not what's been happening to my son? Does this not happen to you and I? And Jesus says, we are blessed because of it. Rejoice and be glad. Eternal perspective, because your reward in heaven will be great. Keep that eternal perspective. When we talk about the coming judgment, it's easy for us to think in the negative and to be full of fear. But there is something wonderfully encouraging about the coming judgment for those who live under the shield of God's protection. Do you remember we read about that in the psalm earlier on? The psalmist cries out to God for justice. For justice to be exacted against his oppressors. Friends, in the face of frequent injustices in this present, we need to rest in the certainty that God sees all and that God knows all. He won't be mocked and he will judge the world one day in righteousness. The only ones who won't get what they deserve, the only ones who won't get what they deserve, are those who trust in Jesus. So may we persevere with that eternal perspective, as Paul did, motivated to boldly proclaim the whole gospel wherever God wants us to, indeed even to the very ends of the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Paul. We thank you for the way that you used him to spread your word to the end of the earth. And we pray that you would use us too. Help us to understand the nature of opposition and to persevere in the face of it. Help us to take the many opportunities that you give to us to proclaim the whole gospel. And throughout this life, Father, help us to persevere with a healthy, eternal perspective. Amen.